Genesis 9, verses 18 through 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived for 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him now in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this moment and uh, this opportunity to come together as your people. We are sheep in need of your nourishing sustenance, found only herein in your living and active word. Feed us, we pray. Give us the bread of your inspired scriptures. Give us faith to see and behold Christ. Lord, encourage us now as we continue to worship you and hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've paid attention to the news this week concerning the Southern Baptist Convention. If you have, it's not the best news, but I I wanted to read a quick quote from Robert Moore, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, uh, responding to uh, allegations and news of um, many churches in the SBC who have covered up uh, sexual assault uh, accusations. Um, Robert or Russell Moore, I think, responds rightly. He says, we should see this scandal in terms of the church as a flock and not as a corporation. Many, whether in Hollywood or the finance industry or elsewhere, see such horrors as public relations problems to be managed. The church often thinks the same way, but nothing could be further from the way of Christ. Jesus does not cover up sin within the temple of his presence. He brings everything hidden to light. We should, too. When we downplay or or cover over what has happened in the name of Jesus to those he loves, we are not protecting Jesus' reputation. We are instead fighting Jesus himself. No church should be frustrated by the Houston Chronicles reporting, but should thank God for it. The judgment seat of Christ will be far less reticent than a newspaper series to uncover what should never have been hidden in the first place. It's just as true in God's word as well, isn't it? 
the Bible doesn't cover up the ugly and, and the honest spots of our human indecency and sin. The Bible is an honest book showcasing humanity's failures. And we've seen that, I think, clearly throughout Genesis so far. Adam and Eve's failure in Eden. Cain's murderous jealousy. A humanity's descent into total depravity. And to be clear on this, the Bible does not primarily present for us models of faithfulness. There are moments, sure, where we see what real faithfulness looks like. But by and large, when we read the Bible, we see the Bible showcasing for us the inability of men and women to do what they ought in stark contrast to the holiness and faithfulness of God and what he always does. The storyline of the Bible is more about the faithfulness of God in light of our sin and wrongdoing and what he's done for us than it is any more or anything we could ever do for him. Our text this morning starts on a brighter note. It's the picture of Noah and his family standing resplendent in the sunlight of a brand new world as they step out of the darkness of the ark and out of the darkness of God's judgment of the flood and step into a new beginning. Indeed, as we saw last week, Noah is meant to be seen in Genesis as a, as a new Adam. He is the new man meant to bring renewed hope for a new humanity. Remember before the flood, he alone was righteous, a man who said to have been walking with God, which meant that he was someone who believed in God, right? He, he trusted in God's word, and thus he had a relationship with God. That's what it meant to walk with God. He knew God, and God knew him. Indeed, the first thing Noah did as soon as he got off of the ark, we saw this last week, was to build an altar for the Lord and offer up sacrificial animals as an act of worship. Noah was exalting God and thanking him for his saving grace. Because God remembered Noah, in worship, Noah would remember God. The result? Last week we saw God renew with Noah the covenant he made with Adam at creation. A promise to never again curse the ground because of man's sin. The sign of this precious promise? God co-opting a rainbow. In the text, God calls it my bow. A vibrant sacrament in the sky, shining as a constant reminder that God really loves mankind. What a scene then we're left with. Righteous Noah standing in the glow of the dawn of a new day. He and his family are poised to fill the world yet again with men and women who would also remember and worship God. But alas, our passage shows us something else. Even though God had washed away sinners from off the earth, the flood could not wash away sin. The very man Noah, who was saved through the flood by the ark, also carried within his own heart a sinfulness which would wreak continued havoc even in this new world. The ark saved Noah, but it also saved sin. As Graham Goldsworthy makes the point, quote, the flood did not purge the earth of wickedness, and we cannot suppose that that was God's purpose. No, if God wanted to eradicate evil, he would have had to eradicate the entire human race. But this God would not do. Indeed, God had already promised that the offspring of Eve would one day come and crush the head of Satan, 
the flood couldn't have been the final solution because in God's plan, the Messiah was to be the final solution. And so as the ark now rests and Noah and his family step off into the new world, we, the readers, I think, are meant to ask the question, okay, well, is Noah here finally that promised seed of Eve? Is righteous Noah the long-awaited Messiah? And the answer is a resounding no. Our passage this morning breaks apart into three simple sections. It takes a look at Noah's sin. Second, it examines Noah's sons. And last, it unpacks God's solution. Noah's sin, Noah's sons, and then God's solution. Verse 20 alerts us to the fact that Noah began to be a man of the soil and that he planted a vineyard. Now, this is no throwaway line. Moses is continuing his insistence, inspired as he is by the Holy Spirit, that Noah is a new Adam-like figure. Look at all the ways Moses is showing us Noah is like a new Adam. And just as Adam was a man of the soil and was created to tend the garden, the ground of the Garden of Eden, so too do we see Noah, the new man in this new world, and he, a man of the soil, immediately plants a garden, a vineyard. Adam ate the fruit from the tree in the midst of the garden, which led to the shame of Adam's nakedness. So too, Noah will overindulge in the fruit of his garden. And what was the result in verse 21? He became drunk and lay naked in his tent. Do you see the intended parallels here? Moses is showing us, reminding us that righteous Noah, a man who for 600 years walked blamelessly before the Lord, even he was in need of a savior. At the end of the day, he was no different than Adam. He couldn't avoid the destructive power of sin, and so even in this new world, cleansed as it was from the flood, sin would still wreak havoc. Noah, who in his drunkenness uncovered himself, was in the end covered in shame and disgrace. There is, I think, a very important lesson here for all of us. Noah's drunkenness is a significant warning. Here was an old man, well into the maturity of life, a man who had walked with God for centuries, who even in his old age was overtaken by sensualities he was apparently able to avoid earlier in life. Think about this. For 600 years, when the culture around him was tough, when sin and temptation were easily identifiable in those pagans out there, Noah walked uprightly. He was blameless in his generation, the text says. But when he was finally able to relax, when persecution wasn't knocking at his door, and when he perhaps thought, you know, I've never struggled with that temptation in the past. Why do I need to be on guard against it now? It was then, when he was least aware and most comfortable, that sin reared its ugly head and dragged Noah down. How often do we give in to the idea that we can ease up in our fight against sin when the conflict is not as tough, when life is smooth? How often do we allow a a little bit more leeway with temptation when we're secluded away in the privacy of our own homes? Noah stands as an example to us. Sin is always there. Sin is always right here. And in good times or rough, in public and in private, We must always be killing sin, or a sin will be killing us. To those of us who have already lived a long life, 
and have seen God's grace working in you maybe, maybe over many, many decades. Uh, particularly here, God's example for us in Noah's life. His 600 years of righteousness was now marred by this one sin. Do you see? Old age is not a reliable source of strength to fight and stand against sin. In fact, I've had conversations with so many older folks who have somehow bought into the idea that just because they've lived for 70 or 80 or 90 plus years, that somehow they have a free pass to now indulge in what they formerly would have kept away from. Friends, sin is sin when you're 18 or when you're 50 or when you're 80. A long life doesn't make the sin any less sinful. And a long life doesn't make any of us any more resistant to its power. You remember Moses? Moses sinned late in life when he struck the rock in anger. And he forfeited his entrance into the promised land. King David sinned with Bathsheba when he was in his late 50s, bringing about Israel's ruin. Solomon departed from the will of God, marrying unbelieving women late in his life. And so too did Noah sin egregiously well late into his life. Friends, hear me on this. Past success is not a reliable source of power for future victory. I'm visiting a friend early tomorrow morning, Monday and Tuesday. He's a retired Presbyterian pastor of a church down in Virginia. Every Sunday morning at 5 a.m., I get a text from him uh, saying, Stephen, I'm praying for you, uh, and I hope uh, your preaching blesses your church and wants to know about what I'm preaching on. We'll talk on the phone every once in a while. This guy's, uh, I think, 85 years old. And at the end of our conversation, I'll ask him, I'll say, Lowell, how can I be praying for you? And consistently every time, a man has lived a faithful life, uh, uh, an unmarred ministry in the same church and, and he's coming near to the end of his life. And every time when I ask him, Lowell, how can I pray for you? He says, Steve, please pray that I continue to finish this race well. I don't want to mess up even now. Oh, friends, that is not just for super spiritual pastors. That's for all of us. Noah's failure stands as a witness to the dangers that await the faithful, even in the passing of years. And Noah's pathetic example here is a warning I think a call to all of us to stay vigilant. There's one place, one place only, where we can finally relax. It's not in this life, right? In verses 20 and 21, we see Noah's sin. Sin itself was alive and well in Noah. Well, we see from the text that it was also alive and well in his sons. Verses 22 and 23 now tell us about Noah's sons. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. What was the sin of Ham here? The Hebrew here means to look searchingly. Not a harmless or accidental seeing, but but a staring a kind of voyeurism. But he also seems to have taken perverse pleasure in exposing his father's folly to his other two brothers. Rather than honoring and obeying his father, as God calls all children to do, he instead further uncovered his father's nakedness by exploiting his father's sin through gossip. 
in stark contrast to Ham, Shem and Japheth acted rightly. Notice how in verse 23, uh, the text seems to take special care in describing how these two brothers can do all that they can to not even look at their father's nakedness. They do all that they can to not only honor their father, but get this, they do what they can to restore their father. Keeping their their backs turned to Noah, they they spread the garments across both of their shoulders, They, they slowly backed into the tent and then laid it upon without even looking. I think as Kent Hughes rightly remarks, their love truly covered a multitude of sins. It's here where we see another profound parallel between Noah and Adam. Just as when Adam and Eve sinned, their shame being exposed in their nakedness, and then God graciously clothed them with animal skins, remember a covering which signified God's grace and a promise of restoration? Well, now we see Noah's sons cover Noah's nakedness. Notice here the continuation of a theme we've seen throughout Genesis, a theme which finds its Genesis back in that promise of chapter 3, verse, thir- uh, chapter three, verse 15. Uh, the, the seed of the woman would be at enmity with the seed of the serpent. This is the theme of, of two kinds of descendants, as we've seen throughout Genesis. A, a, a godly lineage, and then there's always the ungodly lineage. First, it was godly Abel, who was killed by ungodly Cain. Then we saw the descendants of Seth, men who confessed God and walked with God, who stood in contrast to the descendants of Cain, men who boasted in their ability to kill and and take any women as they pleased. And now we see this theme again in the sons of Noah. Ham on the one hand, and then Shem and Japheth on the other, representative of two groups of mankind, those who, like Adam and Eve, have their nakedness covered, or those who, like Ham who make no attempt to cover nakedness and even shamelessly expose it and delight in the idea of nakedness. This is an interesting read, I think, in light of today's culture, which more and more seeks to unite an expression of freedom with nakedness. Uh, Unfortunately, it's all over social media, which makes me want to more and more step away from anything in social media. Uh, Fourth wave feminism has even imbibed the idea that true freedom is somehow seen in women not needing to feel ashamed with very little clothing or even no clothing at all. We'll see these two lines diverge even more next week in chapters 10 and 11. One group, the line of Shem, ends in blessing, the calling of Abram, and the beginning of God's people, the Jews. The other group, the line of Ham, experiencing only curse as they descend more and more into sinfulness. It's fascinating. Uh, When we read later in Leviticus 18, Moses wrote that. He writes about the Canaanites, these, these cursed descendants of Ham. They're described as centrally perverse people. Everything the Canaanites did was an extrapolation of Ham's lurid sensuality we see here. And in Leviticus 18, where Moses describes how degenerate they were, he uses the word nakedness 24 times in that chapter to describe them. I think highlighting their connection back to Ham. So what Ham did was sinful. And this leads us to see now Noah's response, which prophetically speaking was really God's solution. In verses 24 through 27, we see Noah prophetically pronounced both a curse and a blessing. See that? Verse 24 tells us that Noah awoke from his wine and 
had found out what Ham had done, and what transpires is Noah's response. These are Noah's both first words and his last words. They begin in a curse, and they end in blessing. Verse 25, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Isn't it interesting that Noah here curses his grandson Canaan rather than Ham? Do you see that? We'll see next week that Ham has four sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And here, Noah doesn't curse Ham, who committed the sin, but he curses Canaan. Why? Is this a glimpse of what God means later when he says he visits the iniquities of the fathers unto the third and fourth generations? Perhaps Noah saw in Canaan the same evil traits present in his father. The acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. More likely, this was a prophetic curse which Moses is bringing out because it had immediate implications for the original readers, right? Who would have that been? Those men and women who were just about to go into the promised land of Canaan and were tasked by God to drive out the Canaanites. Or the Canaanites were enemies of God's people, the Jews. And here they would have seen why that ultimately was. The people who first read or, or, or heard Moses' Torah would now have a prophetic reason written down in Holy Scriptures behind their enmity with Canaan. Perhaps there's a bit of just retribution here as well. Just as Ham, because of his sin, was now a blemish to Noah, so too would Canaan be a blemish to Ham. You can only imagine, right, the awkward relationship that now existed between Noah, Ham, and Canaan. What kind of counseling had to go on there? Sin unravels relationships. You have to wonder, did Ham and his family now leave Noah, much like Cain had earlier left Adam and Eve? Alas, Noah's curse would be equally matched by the blessing in verse 26 and 27. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Do you see here a similar surprise? If we're surprised to see the curse given to Canaan instead of Ham, notice now how the blessing is directed towards the Lord Yahweh instead of Japheth and Shem. See that? Blessed be the Lord. Here is Noah's blessing upon his other two sons, and it's carrying with it the clear idea that their blessing is because of God, not ultimately because of what they've done, Or maybe we could put this differently. Noah is blessing God for how Shem and Japheth acted. It was his divine grace that worked within them to live as they did. Do you see how Noah uses the covenant name of God there in verse 26? He says, blessed be Yahweh. And look at this. Who is the God of Shem? That's a fascinating move to me. It's as if he's saying that Shem is already in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. And and, and this is the source of all of Shem's blessings. It will be of no surprise to us then when next week we see that the great-great-grandson of Shem is none other than Abraham himself, the father of all God's covenant people, the Jews. We're seeing God's electing grace continue to narrow down through this lineage of Shem. Noah adds to Shem's blessing the prophecy that Canaan will be his servant. Again, this is a 
a great blessing because it is a new step in the Old Testament's unfolding of Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. But the chosen line of God's coming Messiah is now narrowed down through the descendants of Shem. And I think what he's getting at is this. Unlike Abel before, who was murdered by Cain, or the descendants of Seth, who were drawn away by the ungodly daughters of men, Now here, the line of Shem would not be marred by the Canaanites. No, God would graciously turn the tide in the conflict between those who trust God versus those who hate God. Verse 27, Noah blesses Japheth. He says, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. It's important to note here that Noah prophesies that Japheth will be blessed, but look, that his blessing will come as a result of the blessing of Shem. See that? Japheth will be the father of a large swath of humanity, but they will ultimately find blessing in and through the descendants of Shem. Here indeed is a glimpse at what the New Testament will later make more fully known that through the great, 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 great grandson of Shem, a man by the name of Jesus Christ, that all the nations will find God's blessing in him. Paul will later state the truth this way, that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Friends, by being found in Jesus Christ, by believing in him now and being united to him by his Holy Spirit, we find blessing in the tents of Shem. Even though, genetically speaking, we find our lineage in Japheth or even in Ham. Isn't it fascinating that the first Gentile convert to Christianity, the first person to find salvation in Christ who was not a descendant of Abraham, right? Someone who wasn't a Jew, was an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. The Ethiopian who was a descendant of Cush who found his lineage from Ham. This was the first man God chose from among all the Gentile world to bring into his restorative saving grace. If in Christ all of God's promises are yes and amen, then in Christ God's curses are null and void. Noah foresaw the blessing of Shem and Shem's far distant descendants, a seed who would come and finally reverse the curse of the fall. In one man, Jesus Christ, the entire world would come and find rest or could come and find rest. Friends, that gospel is now open to all people. No matter who your lineage or DNA finds descent in, the gospel call is to come, repent, and be found in Jesus Christ. And in him, Paul says, there is not Greek or Jew There is not circumcised or uncircumcised. There is no barbarian, Scythian, Scot, Nigerian, Irish, Frenchman, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Friends, what amazing gospel that we have presented for us all the way back in the beginning of Genesis. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord, you have saved us in such a wonderful and marvelous and powerful way. 
You have rescued us from the ugly slavery of sin. And we have experienced and tasted your goodness and your salvation. You have given us a new beginning, a new life hidden in Christ, washing away our sins and giving us an eternal inheritance as your sons and your daughters. Yet, Lord, we, like Noah, are still full of sin, and and sin still gets the better of us all too often. We're powerless over sin outside of you. Help us to stay vigilant over sin. Help us, whether we're new Christians or mature and experienced Christians, to continue regarding sin with a healthy respect as an enemy who is quite capable and deadly. Help us to keep our guard up. Lord, we take comfort that you are far greater than any enemy who rises against us. You are more powerful than a sin within us. And so teach us and help us to come to you and to rely on you as we fight the sin in us. You alone can make us stand. We pray, Father, that you would cause us to act righteously in our lives. Even as we know that you have already declared us to be righteous through your Son, Christ, we pray that you would cause us to act righteously in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.